Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in March of 2016. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. All her life, Emily felt different from other kids. Between therapist visits, sudden uncontrollable bursts of anger, and unexplained episodes of dizziness, things never felt right. For years, her only escape was through the story she crafted. It wasn't until a near-fatal accident when she was 12 years old that Emily and her family discovered the truth, a grapefruit-sized brain tumor at the base of her skull. In her new memoir, All Better Now, Utah writer Emily Wing Smith chronicles her struggles with both mental and physical disabilities, the devastating accident that may have saved her life, and her way through it all, writing. Emily Wing Smith received her master's degree in writing for children and young adults from Vermont College. She's the author of previous books, Back When You Were Easier to Love and The Way He Lived, and she lives with her husband in Salt Lake City, where she says she writes, bakes chocolate chip cookies, and occasionally substitutes at her old high school, which she says hasn't gotten any less odd. <laughs> uh, we <laughs> we uh, welcome in Emily Wing Smith. Thanks for joining us. Hey, you're welcome, and thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for uh, being with us on on the program. Um, so uh, I want to start with uh, how the memoir came about. I think this was a suggestion from your publisher. Said you have a very interesting story. I believe you were somewhat resistant to the idea of, of writing a memoir. I was. I mean, I guess resistant might not be the the correct word. I, I was more thinking, sounds sort of self-indulgent. Um, I had sort of been, an, I was a writer uh, and obviously had written two young adult books, but I was still kind of under the impression that people had to be a, a little more well-known. Uh, it seems like famous people wrote memoirs, but I wasn't famous or even particularly well-known in my field. And so to be able to just be like, well, my story is interesting. I mean, yeah, my story is interesting to me, but I didn't know if it would be interesting to a wider audience. It was when my editor for my previous two books had heard my story and said, no, this is interesting to everyone. I, I think you should should share. And and that's when I felt okay about going ahead with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's the what's the audience, do you think? You, you write it, you, you've written young adult uh, novels, and I think this is could uh, be read and enjoyed by, I guess, young adult and up. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's published as a young adult novel, um, so by my same uh, Dutton Books for Young Readers. So it is a young young adult book and had the same editor and was, was released in conjunction with a re-release of my first book, The Way He Lived, which was originally published in 08 and is now being released eight years later in hardcover at the same time as my memoir. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's generally for a young adult audience, but a lot of the people who I've heard from who have really uh, connected with the book are also adults. So, yeah, I would say young adult and up. And so there's a lot of a lot in here I think people can relate to. I mean, there's some extraordinary things um, that, you know, I don't know. I don't know if anybody's experienced, but uh, not fitting in, right? And that's, I think, in, in our teen years, that's a, that's a big problem and continues for, for many of us into, into adulthood. Yeah, definitely. I, I've loved hearing from people and hearing from people who've connected with the book. It's Brain Injury Awareness Month, so a lot of people have reached out to me who I don't know and said, I really connected with your book. I have a brain injury, too. I know just what you're going through. And we'll connect that way. And then there will be a lot of people who they say, I've gone through nothing of what you've gone through, but I feel like I know you, and I feel that you and I have a lot in common. And I think that's been the really gratifying part of it is 
realizing that we kind of all feel different and weird, and it doesn't matter what our situation is, we can all relate to that. Now, the extraordinary part of it that I, I'm guessing not many people, if if any, experienced, you, you say you are sometimes referred to as the thank God she got hit by a car girl. Yes. <laughs> uh, it was pretty interesting. I had I got headaches my entire life um, growing up. In fact, I I sometimes joke that I didn't, like I was about six before I even realized there were such a thing as headaches. I sort of just thought, because they were all I'd ever experienced, and all I really knew was my own experience, I just figured that it was, the default setting for the human brain was just to be um, in pain all the time. And, and so it, it, it didn't strike me that like this was at all unusual. And then um, when I figured it out, I was like, oh, well, that figures. That's why I, that's, it figures because I'm the weird girl. So that's why I have this, this weirdness of always having my headaches. And, you know, as I got, as I got older, I, uh, I was kind of a, a difficult child. I had behavioral problems, lots of anger issues, and uh, a, a really a pretty bad anxiety. So I went to a lot of doctors and a lot of therapists. And uh, mainly the doctor said, you know, she has a lot of anxiety, puts a lot of pressure on herself, and that's probably why these headaches are. Um, and so we, we never, the doctors and therapists both were like, yeah, this is sort of a, a psychological issue um, more than a medical one. And it was only when I was uh, crossing the street when I was 12 uh, after a shopping trip that I was hit by a car, uh, sustained some pretty severe head trauma to, my, to the, the front of my head. And it was through scans that they realized that I had a pre-existing brain tumor that nobody had known about. And it was about the size of a grapefruit. And yeah, nobody had Nobody had caught it yet, and it kind of put things into perspective of, oh, this would be why. Uh, and so the, the doctors uh, discovered it then and, and removed it, I believe. Yes. Yeah, it was uh, completely operable. So that was uh, a very, just a, a miracle. Uh, it was so big, but it could be removed without uh, removing a lot of the tissues that you need to live <laughs> so uh and i it didn't have any it wasn't cancerous and it didn't i didn't need chemo or any uh radiation any follow-up treatment in terms of that it was all surgically removed so uh, that was very good but also i mean people said this couldn't have gotten any bigger it was encroaching on her brain stem and it was it was right now just affecting my motor skills, and I, I was getting more and more uncoordinated the older I got, and my headaches were getting worse and worse. But um, it was getting pretty soon to get big enough that it would have just simply blocked the flow of cerebral spinal fluid to my body, and and I most likely just would have gone to sleep and never waked up, woke up. So. Mm-hmm. So that, that's where that phrase, thank God she hit, got hit by a car, normally <laughs> that wouldn't be a, a thank God thing, but, yeah. but for you it was. I wonder if I could have you read a, a passage, uh, page 114. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, this is your, you, you've awakened, I guess, uh, not quite sure what has happened. I guess they've told you you got hit by a car when you're 12 years old. By the way, we're talking with Emily Wing-Smith. She lives in Salt Lake City. Her memoir is called All Better Now. And uh, perhaps uh, you read that uh, 114 and, and then the 115, which is a partial page. 
Okay, excellent. Um, Dad says, Emily, do you know what a brain tumor is? Yes, I do know what a brain tumor is. I'm relieved that as sick as I am, I still have the smart girl recall that's become my personal trademark. I may be a loser, but I'm a smart loser with a mind like a steel trap. I remember everything. I read a book about a girl with a brain tumor. This mass of craziness in her head keeps getting bigger and bigger, and it's her dying wish to go to Disney World. So her sister sneaks her out of the hospital to make her dream come true. When you have an out-of-control mass of craziness in your head, the end is inevitable. I wonder if a different girl, a girl lying on the other side of the blue circus tent curtain, has a brain tumor. A brain tumor is the kind of thing I always thought I'd have, a real out-of-control mass in my, of craziness in my head to explain the out-of-control craziness I've always felt in my head. Something we would discover and say, ah, so this explains it. And I would lie in a hospital bed very much like this one, and I would not look like a boxer in a title fight. I would look like an elegant Victorian princess. They'd all line up to see me as I lay with my arms folded across my chest, holding a red rose mid-bloom. I'm sorry, they'd say. I didn't realize there was an out-of-control mass of craziness in your head. No one who is dying deserves to be treated the way I treated you. Lots of people would say that. The kids from the neighborhood. The kids from the neighborhood. The kids from school. My sister. My parents. They would all beg my forgiveness, which I would graciously bestow with my parting breath. And then I would be taken from this earth, never again to deal with the pain and suffering I had endured for so long. But I don't have a brain tumor. I have a car accident. So I tell my father, it's something people get in their head and then they die. And he pauses before he says it. Sometimes people die, but they don't think you will. It doesn't make sense. I don't have a brain tumor. I have a car accident. I'm not a Victorian princess. I'm a beat-up 12-year-old with braces. It doesn't make sense, but then it does, and then it hurts to keep my eyes open, so I close it. And one last thought is, I have a brain tumor and I have a car accident. And uh, there were several passages there. kind of give you an insight into the young Emily, um, who says in this passage, I may be a loser, but I'm a smart loser, yeah. <laughs> which is, uh, yes, yeah. spunky, um, <laughs> problematic view of yourself as well? Yeah, it's definitely the view I had of myself growing up of like, well, I may be, you know, unable to walk straight and I can't ride a bike and I'm not good at sports or PE. But, you know, the one thing that I do have is that I'm, I'm smart. So that's going to be like my, my trademark from now on. Like people might call me a loser, but at least I'm, at least I'm smart. How did other kids react to you and, and you to them? You know, I didn't really relate very well with my peers growing up. Um, a lot of, in fact, in my book, it mentions a lot of the therapy that I went through as a, as a kid, young kid, was play therapy. And I just didn't relate to the other kids at all. I had a much easier time when it was one-on-one, me with the therapist. And it kind of continued when I went into school. Um, I just felt inherently different from them. And I couldn't really put my finger on why at that time. I... Um, I felt just isolated. I didn't feel like anybody knew what I was going through. And I had these bouts of anger that would just just make me kind of weird to other kids. And I think other kids were just kind of perplexed by me of, 
what's going on? And why does she lash out sometimes for no apparent reason? And, and act like she's in pain all the time. And, and sometimes just act superior and kind of, because I think sometimes I was just like, well, if I'm going to be a loser, I'm going to be a smart loser. Hmm. And so, yeah, I, it, it was a difficult time growing up. Uh, you went to, you attended the children's center. Tell me about the children's center. Yeah, uh, it actually uh, still exists here in Salt Lake City. It has two branches. Um, it's a, a sort of treatment center for kids who have various um, emotional problems uh, or mental health issues. Um, they treat mental health issues uh, a little different, more a little differently than they did when I was uh, a patient in the early 1980s. Uh, now there's a lot of um, there's a lot more that we know about mental health in children. And at the time, we didn't know as much. And, um, but, the, but it was an excellent, it's an, it was and is an excellent facility of um, the combining play therapy and group therapy for kids along with um, one-on-one therapy groups with the kids and then with their parents as well. So uh, with advances, I guess you you think you would have been treated treated in the medical sense differently now. Yeah, I do, problems? and and something I I like to talk with people about because I think that we have a there was definitely a sense I think at the time that we didn't really understand depression, and we particularly didn't understand depression in children, and didn't think oh, you know, children get depression just like adults um, because there was more this view of like, well, no, you're a child. You don't have, you don't have mental illness yet. And it's something that we're only now figuring out more about and even figuring out more about how to give, give children medication and figure out their, their mental health needs. It's interesting on, for, for me, I'm not sure if it was uh, that my mental health was what gave, I mean, I think at the time people said, Oh, it's her poor mental health that is giving her the headaches. You know, it's her high anxiety and depression that's giving her the headaches. Uh, now, as someone has a brain injury survivor, I don't know if that's the case so much as that it was the headaches that were giving me the mental health issues or the symptoms of a mental health issue. But I still think it's an issue that we need to address of um, making sure that our kids feel safe and are taken care of um, in the best way that we know how to. Let's take a break. When we come back more with Emily Wing-Smith, she's a Salt Lake City author, and uh, she's author of uh, two previous uh, novels, uh, one of which I think won the uh, Utah Book Award. Uh, the it first, did, yeah. first one, yeah. <laughs> the so, way he lived. Congratulations. Uh, and the, the new memoir is All Better Now. Um, Emily Wing-Smith says that uh, she is is known in some circles as the, <laughs> thank God I got hit by a car girl. That's because after that accident, um, it was during that accident, in the aftermath of the accident, that uh, the brain tumor that was undiscovered until she was 12 years old was discovered and, and removed. Uh, I want to talk when we come back uh, more about the brain. It's, it's mysterious, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. interconnected, it's fragile, and uh, you continue to, I think, to have problems even though the tumor was, was removed. And there's a lot of emotional issues uh, surrounding that as well. Ultimately, this is a, a motivational, inspiring memoir. Emily Wing Smith went on to uh, get a master's in creative writing. Uh, she's a success- successful author. Um, 
By the way, Emily Wingsmith, I'll have you read the pro- prologue when we come back. So maybe get to, get to that. Oh, passage. great. Okay. Um, well, more with Emily Wingsmith following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cafe Ibis Gallery Deli at 52 Federal Avenue in Logan, featuring triple certified coffee, espresso bar, and Saturday and Sunday brunch from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. Details at cafeibis.com. There was that time that Barbara Streisand invited me over. Do you want to take a sip of soup? We talked about childhood, ice cream preferences, Brazilian coffee, and what it was like to direct. You never have to raise your voice because everybody's finally listening. I'm Alec Baldwin from Barbara Streisand's house. On the next Here's the Thing from WNYC. Join us Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, including musical performances, festivals, live theater, art shows, dance, educational or guest lectures, workshops, volunteer opportunities, and more. We have a more user-friendly submission page. Just visit the UPR website at upr.org and click on the community calendar link. There, you can review the submission guidelines. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in March of 2016. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. All her life, Emily felt different from other kids. Between therapist visits, sudden uncontrollable bursts of anger, and unexplained episodes of dizziness, things never felt right. For years, her only escape was through the stories she crafted. It wasn't until a near-fatal accident when she was 12 years old that Emily and her family discovered the truth, a grapefruit-sized brain tumor at the base of her skull. And her new memoir is called All Better Now. We're talking with Utah writer Emily Wing-Smith, who in her memoir chronicles her struggles with both mental and physical disabilities, the devastating accident that may have saved her life, and her way through it all, which was writing. And uh, before we have you read the passage, uh, the prologue from from the book All Better Now, Emily Wing Smith, um, you you were you were you were a very interesting kid. Um, <laughs> I think people would be drawn be drawn to you. Uh, the, the photograph of you, I'm not sure what age you are on the cover of the book, kind of tells a story. Very serious. Uh, yeah, this is my first grade school picture, so first probably grade. about six, maybe almost seven. <laughs> Not smiling at all, sort of glaring at the camera, but uh, yep. very, very, serious, very determined as well, it looks like. You played a game, apparently, lying in your bed called Nobody Loves Me. Tell me about that. Oh, yeah. Um, that was, uh, I, I used to have terrible insomnia when I was a kid, and I, I just wouldn't be able to go to sleep for hours. And um, one of the things that I would do uh, is get undressed because I found that when I was really cold, it made me tired, and I would hide out under my bed and try to kind of come up with scenarios of the of terrible thing of like what terrible things could happen to me and why I would be just stranded and alone in a dark in a dark cold place and and it was somehow comforting to me I think to to then be able to get warm and then fall asleep um, to feel like, oh, well, you know, if I have something really, really bad happen and I get really, really cold, then being warm and having nothing bad happen will be such a relief that it'll make it easier to go to sleep because, um, you know, I'll just be so relieved that I'm finally warm and safe. And 
and that was how I how I got to sleep a lot of times. Interesting. So you're uh, you're creating a narrative there. That's you're you're using your creative skills, your writing skills, in a, in a sense. Definitely. I always uh, I feel like I was always a writer even before I could write because it did take me kind of a while to get the hang of physically writing um, because my dexterity is is pretty limited. Now we know from the brain tumor, um, but. I even before then, I feel like, yeah, I was always crafting, crafting stories and always trying to give myself a happy ending uh, to the or my characters. Mm -hmm. That's is that go to that goes to the title, I guess, all better now. I guess you're you're imagining a future in which you're all better. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. So Uh, that's been something that has always been a part of my life. Since I was very, very young, of yeah, constructing a, a story in a world in which I could, in which things made sense, kind of, and I could make sense of things. Mm-hmm. Now you, you, <laughs> you made up a boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> well, in particular, I should say I made up a, a friend who was a boyfriend for a friend who I felt like I was losing. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. I, yeah. <laughs> it was sort of to increase my social standing in a way. Uh, I, I, I knew that this, uh, this girl who had been my, my best friend for years was, was kind of growing away from me and, and, and growing up. And I was being, I was kind of strange. And I, I think that I felt like I was losing her. And the only way that I felt like I could uh, get her back was if I had created this, this guy for her that was interested in her and that he was my friend. So the, really the way that she would communicate with him was through me. Mm-hmm. The problem being, of course, that, you know, I'm not him. So that, that's why their correspondence was through letters. Pretty, cre- pretty creative. You, in fact, in the, in the book, you include a couple of letters. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know that they were exactly as written um, because mm-hmm. I no longer have... The letters in my possession because I, I mailed them to my to the friend, um, but I, I can remember a lot of what I wrote, um, and I and I would really work on them and work on crafting this different personality that wasn't me. It was completely opposite of me because you know it was this talented, popular, good-looking guy, and I was a loser. I, I mean, a smart loser, but I was a loser. But but he wasn't, and he would be the kind of friend that she would want to have and that she would deserve. And, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so I would work on that. <laughs> so pretty, that's how I could include them with pretty good recall. His name was Rembrandt. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, uh, the, the, yeah, I didn't really have a name when she was like, so what's his name? And I was like, oh, uh, Rembrandt. <laughs> it was an artist we'd been studying in school. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it just came to me. I, I don't know why she didn't guess right there and then, like, this is a complete fabrication. No one's name is Rembrandt, but it worked. Now you, you described yourself as strange. I guess maybe even at the time you you felt like, yeah, I'm 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 different from the, from the other people. <laughs> uh, but that I think that becomes a positive, more of a positive as you grow older, right? The, those unique qualities. Yeah, I think so. I think it's been something that I've learned to embrace about myself. It's. Uh, and it's something that is easier, I think, to embrace as you get older. You get it; it becomes less important what other people think, and you get to know a wider variety of people who don't think you're strange and who think that your quirks are are 
are interesting and and the uh, the things that you might have thought were were negatives are really either positives or just something that makes you you. Mm-hmm. I think for a long time I thought like, well, I'm Emily, and like Emily is just inherently broken, and so there I will never be able to get all better because just I am broken. And then it was through um, like my journey of, uh, of the car accident and the brain tumor of realizing, well, no, there were parts of my body that were broken and they will never get all better. But the idea of, but what part of me is getting all better is realizing that Emily, her, Emily, the, the being Emily was never broken. And it was, it was just my, it was just her body. How do, how do you think you, you get kids to get that message and internalize it? Kids are very self-obsessed. They're very obsessed with peer pressure and, and, uh, and fitting in. And if, if, if they don't, that can be devastating sometimes. Yeah, I think so. And I think even still, uh, because I, I am really encouraged, I see a lot in my neighborhood, there being, uh, and, and in local schools that I visit, being more inclusive of quirks. It definitely seems, and I was talking with some friends of my, my age about this, it definitely seems like being unique. Uh, it's, it's a little more um, accepted in a way um, of being able to be yourself and, and not have that make you a target. And I think before there was a message of like, be yourself, but being yourself didn't make you a target if you if yourself wasn't similar to everybody else. So I think we've come a long way. I think there's a good um, there's a good. I feel like we're doing a good job as a society of raising awareness of different things that are that are differences that before might have just been viewed as um, oh well she's weird because she's brain damaged uh, instead of saying oh no she has a brain injury but that's not a big deal or someone isn't neurotypical, they might be on the spectrum, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are, you know, going to be completely isolated and completely different. There's a lot more work mainstreaming. But I still think, you know, when you're a kid, you always want to to fit in and to have friends and to be accepted. And uh, I don't know really what the message is to say other than just stay strong and keep going and that you will find people who get you. And sometimes it's hard when you're in the middle of it and thinking, I'm never going to find people who get me. But you will. You just have to hold out long enough. Uh, we're talking, if you just joined us, with uh, Emily Wing-Smith. She's a Utah writer, and her memoir is out. All Better Now is what it's called. Let me have you read the, the prologue now, uh, page three and then over page four. Okay, great. Yeah, so, yeah, just right before the story begins, prologue. I ask myself, how am I living still? And how I ask it depends on the day. Most mornings I wake up woo-head. A brief etymology. Woozy-head became woo-head became woo-head. Woo-head is this headache hybrid that isn't made up of different kinds of pain exactly. It's dizziness and it's lightheadedness, and it's a tremble that starts between my temples and comes out the right side of my body. Bad hand gets the shakes. Usually I can stand up. I put on my glasses. I stagger to the bathroom mirror and stare into my eyes. 
sometimes my pupils are big still and the same size, and I know that woo head will dissipate, so I get ready for the day. But sometimes my pupils are already constricted, even though there's no light, and my head is spinning so fast, and I fall to the floor. And those are the mornings I ask myself, how am I living still? I take my emergency meds to only halfway help and go back to bed, and this will be a long day, one with no writing and no reading, and how am I living still? Every once in a great while, though, I wake up and there's no woo head, and I get out of bed and make sure it's not a trick. I wash my hair and I tilt my head back and still, no woo head. I think, after everything that's happened, here I am, washing my hair. There's no woo head, there's no pain, and bad hand even helps out, rubbing shampoo onto my scalp. My fingers gloss over the incision on the back of my head and the scars on the top of my head, and nope, no pain, none at all. And I think, how am I living still? How am I living my dream, being a writer, publishing books, and hanging out with writer friends? How am I living with a man who adores me, who never gets fed up with woo head or bad hand, or demands a normal wife whose pupils are always the same size? How am I living still? I ask God, but it's not really a question, because I know him well enough to know he won't answer me. Not yet. How am I living still, I say. And I know he knows that what I mean is thank you. That's the, the prologue to the book, All Better Now, a memoir by Emily Wink Smith. So gratitude, gratitude to God. But, but I imagine, um, especially when you woke up from the car accident, they removed the brain tumor, had an explanation that that was the reason for a lot of these problems. Did you think, okay, brain tumor removed, I, I won't have these problems anymore? You know, I, I did <laughs> to a large extent. Part, part of me thought, uh, I don't know. I hope that, I hope that this works uh, sort of because I was like, well, a lot of things were supposed to work, you know. Uh, getting glasses was supposed to help get rid of my headaches. You know, uh, going to therapy was supposed to help get rid of my, like nothing has worked so far, but this, this getting rid of the tumor, certainly that's going to work. And, um, but then there was that tiny part of me that was like, oh, what if it doesn't? But I think that to most other people, too, we thought, yeah, of course, like the tumor was causing the headaches. Thus, without the tumor, there will be no headaches. And that wasn't really how it worked. Um, a, lot of, a, a lot of it, because now I had another head injury, too. I had, I had gotten a frontal head injury from the car accident. So now I was dealing with the repercussions of the frontal head injury, and the repercussions of having the brain tumor removed, which weren't small. I still had a large incision that was deep and slow to heal, and I also had the repercussions of missing a large portion of my brain that had been overtaken, uh, more or less, by the tumor itself. So getting better was a real process, more than uh, just a, okay, well, good, that's taken care of now, you're good to go. This gets us into, uh, you know, the, the brain. The brain's uh, still mysterious to us. So we've made a lot of advances, uh, interconnected. Um, and I guess you're living proof of the power of the brain to, <clears throat> to heal. But still, there, when, when it has trauma, <clears throat> excuse me, um, a lot of those interconnections mean that uh, you have problems in various areas. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, this month is Brain Injury Awareness Month, as I, I think I stated earlier. And uh, so, I, when I when I speak about brain injuries, I say it's, they're the invisible disability because 
the brain affects every part of our body, but you can't see it because the the brain is inside is hidden away inside the head, and um, and you never know what what part of the body it's damaging it is damaging the brain is going to affect. You never know what it's going to um, what it's going to be like for you because uh, each brain injury is different in how it affects people, even if it's a you know, even if it's a similar kind of, of brain injury, it will still affect different people differently. We just don't know enough about the brain and and certainly didn't then and are and know more now, but are still nowhere near knowing knowing how it works and everything about it. Let's take another break. When we come back more with Emily Wing Smith, the memoir is all better now. Uh, by the way, I'll have you read uh, page 211 when we come back. This oh, is a chapter okay, called great. How It Doesn't Happen, and it's accompanying okay. a, a little older Emily uh, with a smile. That's, that's a good, good progress there from the <laughs> picture on the cover. Um, Emily Wing Smith is with us. She's a Salt Lake City author, uh, has uh, written um, two previous books, young adult novels, uh, the first one, The Way He Lived, which has now been reissued, won the Utah Book Award. The other one is called Back When You Were Easier to Love. And the memoir is all better now. More following the break. What does Utah Public Radio mean to you? You can answer that question by entering the annual UPR Art Mug Contest. We want to see your most creative interpretations and appreciations of UPR, our programming, or our station's home here in Utah. From now until Valentine's Day, we'll be accepting submissions, and then you'll all get to vote on your favorite design. The winner will be printed on this year's Spring Pledge Drive mug. For more details, go to upr.org, and to submit, just send your designs to me, katie.swain at usu.edu. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in March of 2016. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are talking with Emily Wing-Smith. She's a Salt Lake City author who's out with a very interesting new memoir, All Better Now. Um, and as we've mentioned, she's sometimes known as the, thank God she hit, got hit by a car girl. That's because at age 12, uh, some of the problems she'd been experiencing up to that point were explained after she was hit by a car. A CAT scan revealed a, uh, a tumor at the base of her skull. That was removed, but uh, she's still had to go on to deal with uh, with brain uh, injury, uh, post-brain uh, injury problems. <clears throat> and uh, we are talking about the memoir on the program uh, today. Emily Wing smith with us for another uh, 10 minutes. So let me have you uh, read this, uh, page 211, and then the first two okay. paragraphs of, of the next page. Great. How it doesn't happen... Here is how it doesn't happen. My hair doesn't quickly grow back into a shiny, cute, regular teen girl mane. My headaches don't gradually get better until they disappear entirely. When I go to physical therapy, I don't get stronger and stronger and watch my right hand become functional because the only thing holding it back was the brain tumor. And now that it's gone, I'm healed and hunky-dory. I don't start playing sports. My tumor-free body doesn't prove that deep within me has always lived a tennis star waiting to be set free. With time, I don't go back to reading as fast as I used to before the accident. Homework doesn't get easier. I don't find friends who really get me, who support me through thick and thin. I do not get less anxious. I do not get less sad. I do not feel like the thank God she got hit by a car girl. 
What happens is this. By eighth grade, I can read more and more without getting headaches, but it takes me longer to finish books. I get a free period for homework. I become editor of my junior high newspaper. I keep writing. My headaches are worse than they've ever been, and doctors can't tell why exactly, just that head injuries are different for everyone. The woozy-headed feeling doesn't go away, and I start calling it woos head, and it becomes my constant companion. I go to physical therapy, and before long, my arms and legs work. And to look at me, you'd never know I was hit by a car. The angular scar on my forehead fades a little bit every day, and I rub it with vitamin E oil like I'm supposed to. And by the time ninth grade rolls around, you can't see it unless you look close. I still don't use bad hand. I have a doctor's note getting me out of PE. I take a full college prep load, so I don't have time for a free period, but I manage good grades without it. Most medicines don't work. I shorten Woo's head to Woo head, and then nickname fit so it sticks. I am lonely and overwhelmed most of the time. I keep writing. In 10th grade, I start Mid-Valley High School. I sleep a lot. I get a bicycle, and I practice until I can ride it well enough not to get made fun of. I wear a helmet. The neuropsychologist recommends I get a part-time job to provide me with increased independence and self-esteem. So I bust tables at the ice cream parlor next to Payless Shoe Source, and every day I go to work and cross the street where I got hit by a car. I keep writing. One of my English assignments gets published in the school paper, and I'm chosen to be on the newspaper staff, even though I'm only a sophomore. My parents announce we are moving to New Galilee. When people find out my story, they're always amazed. They call me to thank God she got hit by a car girl. Yeah, it's it's amazing, and and through through it all, it's the writing, right? It's your creative skills that uh, that, that really help you. I want to talk a little bit more about that? Uh, we do have an email from a listener who says, "Living with a brain injury isn't easy. We aren't perfect. Nobody is. People make fun of us, think we're weird, but when it comes to everyday life, we do the best we can. We deal with everyday life differently. We enjoy the life we're given. We know how to do everyday things. We just do life differently." Thanks for that email. And that I think well, yeah, well said. That's excellent. That's I, that's exactly how I would put it. So yeah. By the way, you can join the program. We know another, another five minutes left with Emily Wing Smith. Uh, upraxis at gmail dot com. Upraxis at uh, at uh, gmail dot com. I was thinking. Uh, I was reading the synopsis a little bit about your first book. Um, by the way, they both both seem like good reads. Uh, so the first book, the way he lived, it's a story about a young man who has died. And then there, there are several other young people, and, and through, I guess, their eyes, his life is sort of pieced together. That, yeah. is, is that an yeah. accurate description? That's, yes, ex- exactly. That's uh, what I tell people, that um, uh, you find out how he lived and who he was and, and how he died, and essentially about him through the voices of six different people who knew him. Hmm. Then I, I, as we were talking here today, I made a connection with with your with your memoir. You're in a, in a sense you're piecing together your your own life. There, there's yeah, a, yeah, a lot of different Emilys there. <laughs> it's so true, and I think yeah, there are so many sides to everyone, and um, that yeah, I I feel like I wrote them in a similar style too. Uh, when I started writing the way he lived, it was piecing together different characters and different voices who knew different sides of of Joel my main my main character who died and I think through this I was piecing together pieces of Emily through various memories 
mm-hmm. and and the various memories took place at different times in my life when I was different Emily's. So yeah, I, it, it was a very similar, it's a similar style. And even the writing process was similar, even though it's fiction versus nonfiction. By the way, before we close, I want to bring this in because I think it may be helpful for people. I think this is why you included it. On top of everything else, <laughs> this, this kid mm-hmm. Emily's going through, you were sexually assaulted. It, it just seems like too much. Uh, did, it, that yeah. must have been a difficult decision to decide to include that in the, in the book. I, yeah, it was. Um, I didn't want to make it seem... But first of all, I, I was very wary of making it seem overly sentimental uh, in, in the sense of, oh, life is so hard. Please pity me. Like it, it just I, I really, really wanted to avoid that um, because that wasn't what I wanted at all. Um, it was actually when a, a friend came to me and she was ta- telling me she she did not know about my experience, but she said, you know, my daughter has come to me and uh, uh, just in tears, uh, and the way that we found out about this horrible abuse that's been ongoing from a family member in her life for many years was that she was having trouble in school. Uh, she couldn't relate to any any of her peers. She wasn't making friends, and finally one night she just burst out into tears and said, you know, I just don't understand. School is so hard. I don't get along with any of the people there. And like, after what has happened to me, they, how would, how would anybody understand who I am and what I'm going through? And it just, it chilled me because that was exactly um, my response and, and my reaction to trying to deal with this. And uh, I ha- I wouldn't really say that it has a a story arc and that, you know, justice was served and everything is fine. And I've worked through all my issues through therapy. It was, it was more gradual than that, but I knew that I needed to include that segment um, for people like my friend's daughter who were reacting in the exact same way of like, why am I different? Why am I weird? I, I knew I was the weird one that was chosen to be victimized because I was the one who had a target on my back because I'm the weird one. And seeing it manifest through her in in such a similar way to me, I thought, okay, this is a story that needs to be told, not because I want sympathy for myself, but because I want all the other girls to to know that I have sympathy for them and not just sympathy, but I know them and I feel what they're feeling and, and and we can fix this as well as we know how if we all share our stories. And you can feel that you're not alone. Yeah, it's an important message, isn't it? To, to, that that you're. It, it's not because of whatever you are or did. It's it's totally on the perpetrator, and and uh, you're not at fault here, in any way, yeah, shape, or form. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a message we can't state enough because it, it it's still you know, even when we say it, it doesn't always ring true to victims. Mm-hmm. So. I wonder, just final question, you've, uh, and I want to make, make sure people know that uh, um, young Emily grew up to, to be successful and, and happy, right? That's a, that's a, what, what's the Definitely, message? Yeah. What's, what's the message you want people to take away, especially young people from, from the book? I, I do want to take that away, and I, uh, I tell people that I, I, I would hope that the message that they would be left with is that, you, that even when you think you can't get all better, you can get all better, but it's it's on your own terms. 
And uh, similar to the email that we, you would just receive of like, yeah, we go through daily life the, the best way we know how. And that's true of all of us, whether we have a brain injury or not. And um, that getting all better for you might not look like it looks for other people, but that doesn't mean that it isn't great and that you won't eventually be able to find a good way of a, a good life. And I, I feel very happy. I feel lucky for the life that I have now. And I, I have a good family. I have a good husband. I have, I'm living what I've always wanted to do, be a writer. And I deal with headaches and I deal with woo head and lack of coordination and various other things, but I have a good life. And I, I, I want other people and yeah, teens, especially, and uh, those growing up to know, just hold on because you can get better in your own way. And that's, and that's okay. That's just, that's just as acceptable as the, the standard popular girls version of all better. It's, yours is just as valid. That's a good place to, to leave it. We're out of time. The memoir is called All Better Now. The author is Emily Wing Smith, and her website is emilywingsmith.com. Uh, Emily, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, it, thank you. <laughs> our thanks to Emily Wing Smith. Uh, that's a uh, repeat of our broadcast from March of 2016. And on that occasion, on that day in March in 2016, uh, we we uh, were in prospect of the Kitchen Sisters coming to Logan. Uh, that was a great event in that year, and ahead of that, we uh, took uh, several opportunities to uh, play some Kitchen Sisters stories. And uh, so we thought, uh, well, let's let's play you this Kitchen Sisters story again, worth revisiting. Uh, so you'll hear me set this up, and then you'll hear this uh, story from the Kitchen Sisters. In the 1950s, a group of Montgomery, Alabama women baked goods to help fund the Montgomery bus boycott. Known as the Club from Nowhere, the group was led by Georgia Gilmore, one of the unsung heroes of the civil rights era. Let's hear this story. You have 52 new messages. Hey, my name is John T. Edge, and I live down in Oxford, Mississippi, in direct Southern Foodways Alliance. There's a woman y'all need to know about. Her name is Georgia Gilmore. She was a cook in the 1950s in Montgomery, Alabama. And when I think of hidden kitchens, I think about the story of her backdoor restaurant, her secret kitchen that fueled the civil rights movement. Hey, how you doing? You live on the street. Do you know where uh, Miss Gilmore used to stay? Yeah, Miss George Gilmore. That's Miss Gilmore house down there. You see that marker down there, that historical marker? Oh, yeah, I see it now. You see the plaque in the yard? George Teresa Gilmore. I'm her son, Councilman Mark Gilmore, Jr. Georgia Gilmore. She could cook. 1920, 1990. She was a stone cook. Her food was cooked on the mama level. And Georgia was like Big Mama, Southern-type mamas. Maybe 10 or 15 of them. Now, my mother at the time was a midwife by profession. She cooked at National Lunch Company in Montgomery when the movement started. When Mrs. Rose Parks was arrested for refusing to give up a seat in 1955, Mama got involved in the bus boycott. She lost her job because management learned of her being a part of this movement that was going on. My name is Johnny Rebecca Carr. And I am the fifth president of the Montgomery Improvement Association. Stop that Alabama bus. I don't want to ride.
During the bus boycott, City of Montgomery brought suit against King and 90 other members of the Montgomery Improvement Association in March of 1956. They were claiming that the bus boycott was an unlawful conspiracy. Georgia Gilmore testified in court. She, in essence, called out this bus driver who had kicked her off a bus. When Miss Gilmore stood up in court, she got fired. You cannot be afraid if you want to accomplish anything. You got to have the willing, the spirit, and above all, you got to have the get up. Everybody could tell you Georgia Gilmore didn't take no junk. I'm Reverend Al Dixon. If you pushed her too far, she'd say a few bad words, and if you pushed her any further, she would. Um, she'd hit you. She was swift on her feet. She could move. I'm weighed by 350, 400 pounds. Marlis King would call her tiny. God is about like she lived about three blocks from where Reverend King was living at the time. I'm a Nelson Malden. Reverend King, when he came to Montgomery, I was his flesh barber. Whenever VIPs would come to town, he would always have Miss Gilmore to cook up a batch of chicken. When she was fired from a restaurant, Reverend King said, well, why don't you go in business for yourself? She turned part of her home into a dining area. Dr. King and the organization helped her to set up where she could go into business cooking in her own home. Dr. Martin Luther King, he needed a place where he could go, where he could not only trust the people around him, but trust the food. Plus, they had a lot of secret meetings, and they didn't want nobody to know, so they went to Georgia House. My name is Martha Hawkins at Martha's Place Restaurant. She inspired me to be able to do what I'm doing. I'm Pastor Thomas E. Jordan, Little Baptist Church, Montgomery, Alabama. About 12 o'clock, we'd make a beeline to Georgia Gilmore's place. A lot of times, you have to wait at nine to be fed. Why don't you sit down? I can't sit down. And as these would leave, another set would come, just like the Methodist communion table. I'm Althea Thomas. I'm organist here at Dexter Avenue, King Memorial Baptist Church. Sometimes there would be about four professors, clerical workers, a policeman or two. Lawyers and doctors, black and white. People like uh, Mars Dees with the Southern Poverty Law Center. She could talk on everybody's level, a confidant. Know what's going down, know what's up. Kennedy Kane, Johnson been here, Dr. Kane brought Wallace. All of them had a chance to eat at my mother's table. she called call you little names, you know. Come here, little heifer. <laughs> she'd be cooking that chicken. Sometimes she'd take it right out the grease and put it on your plate. you just eat wherever you could find a seat, stand up and eat whatever. Well, I say, come here, black woman. Pork chops, stuffed bell peppers. She would have chitlins with slaw, and they'd take the hog maw and cut up in them. She could cook it, man. The bus boycott lasted for 381 days. Georgia Gilmore, another phase of her work was that she had a, a group called the Club from Nowhere. She just made it up in her mind to start raising money for the movement. Aren't you hungry? Well, why not buy a pie from the ladies of the boycott? They sold pies and cakes in the beauty shops. A lot of them was afraid to let people know who they was, so they called themselves the Club from Nowhere. They bought the station wagons for different churches. That's how they organized transportation. In every mass meeting, Dr. King would preach, and she would turn that money in. She raised more money than anybody there. Georgia Gilmore died on a Friday on the 25th anniversary of the Civil Rights Selma to Montgomery March. 
she was fixing food for the marchers. And at the visitation, her family served it to the mourners. She cooked that morning a tub of macaroni and cheese, and she would have fixed a tub of chicken. She was getting ready to cook heavy to help feed the people, and she died. Well, I think Georgia Teresa Gilmore was one of the unsung heroines of the civil rights movement. You know, Martin Luther King often talked about the ground crew. She was not really recognized for who she was, but had it not been for people like Georgia Gilmore, Martin Luther King Jr. wouldn't have been who he was. It seems like it's raining all over the world. You're listening to Access Utah, a piece there from the Kitchen Sisters. You can find many more at uh, the Kitchen Sisters website. At uh, the end here, uh, just another plug for our town hall panel discussion. That's coming up just two days away now. It's on Friday, and we hope that you'll join us uh, here in Logan on the campus of Utah State University. We're titling this Me Too Continues, Where Are We? Post-Kavanaugh, Post-Election. Uh, we're going to talk about where the Me Too movement is, where it's going. This is a part of the UPR original series, Utah Women 2020. We have a great panel uh, that'll be uh, uh, presenting. But uh, also, we want you to come with your questions and comments. Join the discussion. It'll be a free-flowing discussion there, town hall panel discussion, free pizza, free parking. That's at the Lundstrom Student Center, 1295 East, 10th North, in Logan, on the USU campus. And that's uh, free and open to the public. That's coming up this Friday, 6 p.m. Hope you're there. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.